Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper with over a decade in machine learning. And today we're joined by Mike Roberts. Mike's the chief technology officer of Hypergiant, an AI company specializing in decision support software for the defense, space, and critical infrastructure markets. He has 20 years of experience in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning, and over 40 years in software development, including 10 years with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, aka NASA. (laughs) He holds multiple patents, including one currently pending for a novel form of hypergraph database, and is always looking to the technology future. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. And this is fortuitous timing because I believe uh, Hypergiant has just been acquired. We have, as of uh, Tuesday of this week. We're acquired by a company called Trive Capital, which is a private equity firm specializing in uh, DOD and critical infrastructure on uh, aerospace markets. Well, congratulations, though, in order, I guess, then. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're actually very excited. This is kind of a whole new era for us. Absolutely. So you've been in... AI way before it was cool. In fact, when it was absolutely not cool in the so-called AI winter. How did you kind of get into AI? How did that journey look? Because I know you have a very untraditional path, even by AI standards. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I started my career at NASA, working in lunar and Mars advanced mission design. So cool. Uh, it was fun. Yeah, it was, I have to say it was a fun job. But it, it was a little discouraging to study things all the time that were not actually you know, happening, right? It was very long-term outlook. And so I left after about 10 years. And right about then, the internet sort of took off commercially. And I had had exposure to it at NASA. We were one of the early adopters of the World Wide Web. So we had a lot, there were a lot of NASA websites. We learned how to do HTML and all that stuff back before the rest of the world knew about it. So when I left, I, I started an internet company uh, doing web development, web applications, and you know, rode that wave and sold that company in 1999. And subsequently, that gave me a little bit of time and space to do my own thing. And I was always interested in AI. And I decided to kind of set out on my own little journey and, and work on that independently. And so I, I did, working mostly with what we now would call generative AI, specifically around language. So generative AI, you know, 20 years ago, before, you know... It looked the... very different, and it, it was definitely not as good. <laughs> so how did you kind of go about starting that journey? Yeah, so when I had my internet company, I became very interested in information manipulation and analysis and I was inspired by Photoshop. I thought Photoshop was really cool, the way you could take an image and apply these algorithmic filters to it. And I, I thought there should be the equivalent of that for information. There should be like a visual tool that allowed you to interact with information the same way that a designer interacted with photos in Photoshop. And in order to make that happen, there had to be some kind of native format for information. So I got very interested in knowledge bases, you know, just kind of historically 
what they were like and what the different ways people use to digitally store information. And I decided to, to look at language and a connectionist kind of model of language. So word nets, which at, at that time were, were kind of an interesting area of, of research. And so that's kind of where I started was with essentially a dynamic activation network of, of words. And it was not long after that you settled on cuneiform, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a really good book. I think, I think the author is John Sawa called Knowledge, Knowledge Storage, or uh, getting the name wrong, Knowledge Bases, something like that. Anyway, it, it lists a bunch of different ways that people have you know stored information digitally. I mean, it doesn't go all the way back to, mm-hmm. although I, I think it mentions that stuff as background. But it was a good survey of kind of the state of the art at the time, and it was kind of my jumping off point. So on this journey discovery obviously you're doing a lot of research was that with academics was that with companies was that a mixture of both who are your collaboration partners in that journey yeah so my first academic hesitate to call him a partner but mentor was a, a gentleman named sid lamb at rice university i believe he's still there and he had a connectionist model for linguistics and because I was starting with language as my base, I looked to the field of linguistics. And he was an early critic of Chomsky's model of linguistics, which at the time was pretty brave because if you were a critic of Chomsky, you were kind of marginalized academically in, in that era. And he came out with a book Sid did called, I think, Pathways of the Brain, something like that. And that was very influential on my thinking because it, it confirmed my intuition that language, you know, in the brain was was related to the network, the neural network in the brain, and that there wasn't, you know, anything moving around. It, you know, you had a network of relations essentially, and so that that was kind of my starting point academically. And then later, I I formed a relationship with Ken Stanley and his group at the University of Central Florida because he was big into the application of evolutionary algorithms to neural networks. And by that time, and this was mid 2000s, 2010, say, I had moved on to neural networks and was really looking at that combined with evolutionary algorithms. And I'd kind of gone away from language and more towards some really more fundamental biological models, like very, very simple A-life kind of kind of things. So what's your view on the modern take on language models that we're currently seeing these large language models that have you know enormous neural networks in many ways are, are you know, very very impressive but also you know brute force approach in terms of computer power yeah how have you kind of seen things evolve towards that and what's your well yeah i'm not view on that yeah i'm, I'm not gonna lie i was hugely skeptical that neural networks would ever get us to this point i i sort of derisively called them static models. And I was working with dynamic models based on loosely on biological plausibility, right? And I honestly felt like that was the only way that we were ever going to get there. And clearly, I mean, I was wrong. (laughs) We've gotten an amazing, uh, amazing distance with these, you know, brute force models. And I remember 
Peter Norvig at, at Google at that time, he was at Google came and talked here in Austin and he repeated his, his oft repeated refrain that data beats algorithm. Like the more, more data you have, the better you are, the better algorithm you have, the improvements marginal, but, but data trumps algorithm. And I remember walking away from that thinking, you know, he, this guy probably knows something about data. He has access to the largest databases in the world. Uh, maybe I should kind of rethink, you know, my uh, my bias there. But on, on a counterpoint to that, I mean, isn't it isn't it akin to I think believe as Archimedes say, "Give me a lever long enough, and I can move the world," right? But that that lever is incredibly expensive. These distortion effects that have allowed. Um, companies like Google, like Microsoft, like others to subsidize what otherwise would be an untenable proposition, right? Like I can burn through millions and billions of dollars of cash and massive amounts of compute to achieve this brute force. So maybe to be fair to you a little bit and yourself, (laughs) it's like you were, you know, maybe not realizing the back of your head, I was thinking about a cost optimized way to do something. And so therefore dismiss this brute force attempt. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the the more the effect of Moore's law, you know, you can definitely underestimate it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the kind of resources that you have to bring to bear to do this is, yeah. you know, astronomical and then would have been unthinkable. You know, so so that plays into it a little bit too, to be fair to my <laughs> earlier self. Well, but also as we're finding out, some of these things might not be very sustainable. Right. These are current approaches. Well, they the reason that they weren't tried in the past necessarily is that it took. It does take a massive amounts of compute, and now people are trying to find financial viability for these pursuits. Yeah, and I and I definitely think there is vast room for improvement in the algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and I do think that will pay off. I think the question on the table was: well, Could you do this at all? Could you, you know, essentially pass the Turing test? And I, I'm a believer that the Turing test has essentially been passed. People will argue about that, but. But I think for all practical purposes, and in the end, it's a practical test. Mm-hmm. I believe it's been passed. You know, could that even be done? Period. Without, you know, essentially infinite compute <laughs> with <laughs> with the old methodologies. And the answer is, yeah, you don't have to get anywhere near infinite compute. You know, a, a very large company can do it. But that being said, you know, I totally agree that algorithms will will come back a little bit here, if only to save the planet from you know, incineration <laughs> with the amount of energy they have to use to do these things. Yeah, it's, it's not X-Files and zero point energy. So uh, it does cost. <laughs> it does cost to do something. Yes, it does. And, and I'm an engineer, you know, by background. So optimization is always, you know, on my mind subconsciously, if not consciously. I think this struck me there about the last... 10 months since November has been just how quickly things have progressed. It's all, I mean, you know, it's been picking up for a while, you know, attention came out in 2017 and that changed the game, right? You know, the current neural nets went to bed and up come transformers and then progress, progress, progress. And then suddenly, you know, out comes chat GPT and it's like, Oh, it's now practical. Yeah. And then look at the progress since then, you know, with, Everyone getting involved, you know, Hugging Face has just raised an enormous 4.2 billion yeah. valuation round, you know, as one of the platforms for hosting these things. What's your, 
I would say, what's your view in the next five years? But what's your view in the next five months? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what really. might happen? That's the thing, right? This is, uh, you know, Art Bell. They all, they all, remember the old radio show, Art Bell? I used to talk about this thing called the quickening. And I feel like there's like a machine learning quickening happening right now. Yeah, I think the big story is going to be code generation. I think we're already seeing some big moves there just in the last week or so. Because then you start building a loop, right? You start building a loop where you're improving the thing that's improving the thing that you're improving. <laughs> and, and you know, when that happens, you know, I'm not sure, you know, where it goes from there. But at the very least, you know, we're going to see a massive sea change in software engineering. Um, I don't think coders are going to get replaced by AI in the short term, but coders are going to get replaced by other coders that use AI. And the people who, you know, become effective at multiplying that, using that lever, you know, as you mentioned earlier. Almost like that's a training opportunity for somebody. It's a giant training opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be an enormous part of it. I have a good friend who's an industrial designer and he jumped on this. He's also an early adopter and a futurist, Lloyd Walker. And he's done a lot of work looking at how these generative models can be applied to industrial design. And he's out there, you know, ringing the bell. He's like, you know, Paul Revere saying, hey, you, know, you guys got to wake up. And you know, there's a lot of folks out there that are just very stubborn and, and, you know, reluctant to embrace that kind of dramatic change. But, you know, he can now generate a thousand car designs, you know, in an afternoon and, and good ones, right? And even if you have a thousand mediocre ones, there's going to be a few good ones in there. Well, it's uh, easier to edit to review, yeah. to spark the idea. You know, these systems don't yet give you the answer necessarily. They do sometimes. But what they often give you is, you know, a the first few steps, which are often the hardest ones to take anyway. You know, half the time might be spent creating the first draft of a document where if you can have someone do the, or the machine do that for you, yeah. you have to rewrite the entire thing before it's done. Yeah. But still, you're editing and rewriting rather than having to put thoughts to a blank bit of paper. Yeah. Yeah, they've... These models have cracked the creativity problem. And, you know, that's a huge, has huge implications across the board. And we're seeing, you know, legal issues arise as a result of it as well. We are indeed, especially around the data that drives these things, how it's been acquired, where it's been acquired from. And I know you said everyone about Peter Norvis quote about, you know, the data is the important thing here, right? The data is the big thing, algorithms the small thing. Yeah, yeah, the model is essentially just a, transformed version of the data how do you think some of that's going to play out with the fact that data sets are might become harder to acquire or more laws and rules might come around regarding use of data in this way honestly should what should the laws and rules even be around some of this what are some of your thoughts there as a person who thinks for the future yeah uh, you know i think there's much more awareness around data's value you know obviously and you know privacy concerns, but, you know, going beyond that, we're going to see economic concerns, you know, essentially our data is being leveraged as wealth for other people, which means it has value, which means there should be some way of protecting it and transacting it. And I think those kinds of institutions are going to have to be built to accommodate that so that it isn't just, you know, large corporations and large 
accumulations of capital that are able to leverage this, but you know, the average person can get something out of their own personal data, you know, or opt out of the whole, you know, process of contributing their data if they choose to for privacy reasons. And I've seen a number of blockchain advocates say this could be a great, you know, use case for something like a blockchain or blockchain like system where you know your if you, if your data's in some web three construct, obviously that's its own separate kind of question of conversation. <laughs> you know, how might that, that look like? But that could be a way of giving people control. Not my error at all, but I've seen people talking about that sort of construct as a way of achieving that kind of aim. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think blockchain's definitely been a solution in search of a problem. And maybe this is at last the the problem that it can it can solve. Um you know, the, the notion of having decentralized institutions, I think there's a lot more interest in that now, you know, for a variety of economic and political reasons. People want decentralization. They don't want, you know, one entity or a small group of entities in control of institutions that everyone relies on. And, and maybe this is a way of, of achieving that sort of bringing strangers together and trusting each other kind of thing. We had on the, um, the show a few uh, weeks ago, Julia Stoyanovich, who's the director of the Resource AI Center at New York University. And we had a great conversation about, you know, using you know, ways of data and models and how that can be used responsibly and, you know, what that could even mean from both a private and public policy kind of perspective. What's your view on how one can leverage both LLMs themselves, what's the data underpinning them in responsible ways to make sure that we aren't they're creating a good future for the world, not just a future that may be less than savory. Yeah, you know, I wish there was a way to guarantee that. I, I don't think there is. I think the genie is out of the bottle. I think as a society, we're going to have to sort of adapt on the fly. I don't think this is something where we're going to be able to say, okay, let's pause and reflect on this and create you know, guardrails. I, I just, I don't see that happening. You know, first of all, the world itself isn't unified. There's some countries that will race ahead and others that will be more cautious. Some don't have the money. And then from, you know, just a economic standpoint, there's, you know, tremendous money to be made by employing these models, you know, and it's going to be very hard to restrain companies from doing that. Even, and, even yeah, and surprisingly, I, I'm still shocked as the number of people that are still willing to give all their information away for free. Yeah. yeah. It, it's an, I remember reading at one point that there were millennials and, and younger Gen Xers were becoming more skeptical and, and pulling back from, but then at the same time, the youngest generation just has no qualms and no, no real desire for privacy. Yeah. So at the same time, it's like we, we, there is an awareness that this data should be owned by the individual, but at the same time, massive amounts of people are continuing to sign up and give their information away with no restrictions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and, it, it's not going to stop anytime soon. And, and, and yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine finding some effective way to restrain that. And even within corporations, which, you know, in theory have, you know, a lot of control over their employees you know, how do you stop your employees from using large language models to, you know, write things that they need, you know, press releases or internal reports or proposals or whatever, or write code? I mean, you know, how are you going to 
stop them from doing that. I, I don't think as a practical matter, you're going to be able to do that. Because they'll put their own laptop and they'll hack away on their own laptop outside exactly. of the corporate you know, firewall. I'm just going to send this to myself. And, you know, it's just too powerful and too easy to do. Now, Ed, what danger do you see and then even potentially how to mitigate that? So one, one of the things is in the rise of you know, LLMs. Well, now we have for lack of a better word, one voice, right? You don't really input into, you know, chat GPT and get stylistically, you know, the, yes, I can maybe request like, Hey, the, how would Lee write this versus the way how Sid would write this, but it's still relatively generic and kind of a vanilla output. And so we've seen this like with globalization and, and the impact of like, TV shows and, and Hollywood and, and, you know, or other, you know, large players in the world and, and cultural and the impacts that has. And then it, it kind of waters down, you know, cultures in different places. And we can have that same effect here, right? It's like, yeah, there's, there's the water watering down effect. And then there's also potentially resonance effects, right? If, if everyone is kind of using the same tools yeah. to produce text, then you might not, I mean, you, you might expect to see patterns in there and you might not realize that there are these like deep patterns that are showing up and you don't know what sort of the side effects of this being out there. You know, it's like everyone jumping up and down at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can see side effects, you know, so there's that. And then there's also, you know, the somewhat frightening idea of feedback where, you know, you're producing this text and, models are now being trained on this text that's being produced yes so you know it, it could get very weird <laughs> very fast it's like the word the almost potentially the worst version of an echo chamber yeah it's like literally yeah, an echo chamber it's in like one of those whisp the, the whispering galley galleries i don't know if you've seen those in like st paul's cathedral in london you can stand on one end of the this this the, the gallery and the the tower and because of the standing with effects in there mm -hmm. you know there's different parts to the guy that you can hear you can see so you can whisper in there and if you stand in the right place you can hear you know way away away yeah. yeah the whispers coming back i know it's a famous thing in physics right you know when i'm sure you kind of covered that you know yeah um, yeah that's how lasers whis work, whispering right? gallery, uh, lasers yeah. are resonance there's literally you know whispering gallery modes in lasers yes i know that was the one thing that the bloom when we took my kids to a children's museum and you could send i think it was almost like 100 meters away the dishes and they could whisper towards the dish mm -hmm. and you like they could, oh my god how did that happen yeah. <laughs> it's like well this is how physics works hashtag guys. science yes. yes well and that brings up what do you see then as the the i, don't, I take the standpoint is not really generative ai because i i per and, and i don't know i feel like unless something can actually make its own observations like these are and lee's heard me say it's like kind of plato's allegory of the cave the thing is only looking at shadows and it's not even shadows it's shadows of shadows so it's only looking at that and deriving meaning in the world to quote unquote generate an understanding of something it can't even experience and so to me that seems to be the limit of it ever being truly generative because like let's just go back to the code example i've always until it can observe like the full why does somebody need something what code should i write to do that and then what's the impact of that once it's deployed well that that requires observability that doesn't exist for that thing today yeah so i mean i had you know one do you see people trying to solve that and and do you agree disagree or have our other thoughts on like those limits 
Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. And, and you're touching on, you know, one of the core uh, pillars of my own research, which was that the belief that we would need what's called embodied cognition mm-hmm. in order to get to AGI or, you know, general intelligence. I did not think that we could get as far as we've gotten with language without AGI. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that LLMs represent AGI in my mind for the reason that you that you state. I do think, and you know, maybe they'll prove me wrong again with more <laughs> data, I don't know. I do think that we will need embodied cognition to get to AGI, that there has to be you know kind of a run loop. Yeah. And, and so the models that I dealt with were very simplified run loops. So basically I started with the idea of, okay, what is the simplest situation in which a decision has to be made, in which we could say, you know, a primitive form of cognition has to occur. And what I came up with was a one-dimensional environment, and I made it a circle for convenience, <laughs> a one-dimensional environment with a target on it and a little critter that had to find the target. And, and it just had to minimize its energy expenditure. So I had to know whether it needed to go clockwise or counterclockwise on the ring. And it could only sense its distance to the target. That was literally its only sensor. And it had these, you know, little you know, propellers that would move it, you know, one way or the other on the on the ring. And mm-hmm. then I set evolution loose on that problem yeah. with a neural network as the controller of the critter. And what I wanted to find out was not so much whether I could solve that problem, because it solved it, you know, very, very quickly, but as I added dimensions, I wanted to see how the complexity of the neural network changed. So I wanted to get some sort of rule of thumb. I was standing at the base of Mount Everest. I wanted to see how tall it was. <laughs> and so I wanted to kind of get the slope. Yeah. And, and so that was the, the motivation for my research. So we've talked a bit about positives, risks, and dangers. One of the biggest risks, especially with the upcoming election, that's already started here in the US and others around the world. It also ties back a lot into what you were talking about is misinformation. Yeah. Especially with LLMs, that's now industrially producible. Yeah. The internet magnifies all of that. We've always seen that playing out in prior elections and prior kind of areas. The way that erodes, well, for some of us erodes trust, others builds it in the echo chamber. <laughs> right. I'm sure you've got lots to say about that topic. Yeah. You know, so like you say, the rise of, you know, generative language models allows a lot more quote unquote misinformation to be produced. It's not really a new problem because it was already fairly cheap to produce misinformation. You know, reducing the marginal cost of it, I don't think is going to change the equation that much. And, And the real big bang there was the internet because, and I was just talking to someone about this the other night. You had a generation of people who grew up around printed materials, books, newspapers, magazines, and there's sort of an implicit authority in something in print because it means somebody spent money. It cost a fair amount of money to typeset something and put it into print. Mm -hmm. And so you had some sense that that material was vetted in some way in order for it to get into print. And then you had the internet, which 
instantly made any sort of insane rambling <laughs> look a lot like a typeset book or a newspaper. And there was, you know, this, this mismatch of expectations. And I think that that's one reason why it was, you know, difficult to contain misinformation, quote unquote, once it you know, got out on the internet. I think that was, you know, sort of the, the real point where misinformation started to become a, a serious social problem was in the 90s with the internet. That being said, the reason I put misinformation in quotes is that from a social perspective, there's no such thing as misinformation. Uh, misinformation is information that is outside of your trust network, that, that conflicts with your trust network. Um, if you if you're looking at a purely objective definition of it, right, and the more that a society can have a shared trust network and share in the ground truth that arises from that trust network, then the easier it is to repel quote unquote misinformation because basically there isn't that much of it. There aren't because there aren't that many people with foreign trust networks that are alien to your own trust network. There aren't that many producers of misinformation. And, and the, the few that there are are generally going to be, you know, self-interested people that share your trust network and know they're producing misinformation. Once you have multiple trust networks out there where people are looking at different chains of authority, now you have an explosion in the sources and, and vectors of misinformation because now everybody who's on that other trust network is exchanging information that from your trust network's perspective is misinformation. And that's the problem that we have now that we need to, you know, figure, figure some solution to. And the challenge is that's going to, at least my observation, that's going to require a level of humi humility that yeah. leaders in those trust networks are not necessarily going to have, right? And I, and I made the joke about X-Files earlier, but X-Files was popular for a reason and that in the yeah. 80s and 90s, we were finally ready to wake up and f realize that some of the fringes of society that were not trusting government and saying that they lied to us about certain things were right, right? Like, there was a lot of things done in the early days of, you know, Atomic and other uh, bits that, you know, now we're realizing that, you know, people on the West Coast died and the government lied about that. And yeah, so, and, and, you know, before then, even, you know, you had the Pentagon Papers come yeah. out, you know, and, the, you know, Vietnam was sort of a watershed mm -hmm. in that, in that trust, you know, where the, where people felt like their trust had been broken. Yeah. And it's, and so it's easy for like government or anybody else to blame like the rise of social media as, you know, creating these fractured trust networks. But I mean, the groundwork was laid. And so I think, I don't know, my, it's a simplistic view and only one angle to it, but it, seems like that humility is going to be the hardest thing to come by to, to rejoin some of these trust networks. Yeah. Yeah. You got to kind of be able to elevate yourself above it, mm -hmm. you know, because it's something that we're deeply embedded in, right? I mean, it's how we orient ourselves, yeah. you know, socially and politically. Yep. And so the idea of sort of putting yourself outside of that and like looking at it from above, that's a difficult perspective for a lot of people to well it is because then you maintain yeah you risk rejection of your, your the tribe that you're in you risk rejection yeah. of that tribe and then if you don't have that tribe well then which tribe do you belong to yes so well there's research in psychology showing that if you show people with a strong belief 
information against the belief, it actually reinforces their existing belief rather than making it. And this is no, and this includes some people who would think of themselves as being smart. This isn't just like you know, a bunch of people who are, yeah, you know, maybe below average intelligence. But this is like you know just a full sample of people. In fact, the smart people are often the worst ones at this because they think they're right. Well, they're often more convinced they're right because, oh, I'm smart, I've got a high IQ, whatever, I must be right. Right, exactly. You know, and, and that's, that's a great example because once you are embedded in your trust network, when you get information outside your trust network that conflicts with it, you know, you have two choices. You can modify your network and say, you know, these sources must be wrong or you, know, you kind of send feedback back up through the network. But the easier thing to do is just say, well, that must be misinformation. I, you know, it, it completely conflicts with my worldview. And, you know, you take the path of least resistance, even if you're intelligent, maybe especially if you're intelligent for the reason that you just just noted. Well, where do we go next, Lee? Well, gee. <laughs> <laughs> That's the show. No, I'm information science. And and that's, you know, I think how we should look at it is like, okay, can information science help solve this problem? Even though it is a political problem, it is also an information science problem, I believe. Mm -hmm. Well, I think my closing thought here would be that this kind of cuts to the root of why you even have this podcast in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Is there is there is some technology bits that can be solved. You can flag because that's outside a trust network. You can help people reorient that. But that text is a small part of the problem. Well, text is a small part of the solution. The bigger part is the social piece. It's the cultural piece. It's, you know, trying to do things differently as a society, as individuals, as groups of people, and all the strata in between. Yeah, so culture does indeed... <laughs> Eat strategy and actually tech for lunch. I, I would observe that this will have an impact on AI because the next logical step is to train models within trust networks. Right now, most of the models are trained on just a massive amount of data that probably crosses trust networks. So there's, you know, just a hodgepodge of stuff from when people are already doing that. All the sources. Right. I mean, there, there's LLMs actually being generated by both groups on the right, groups on the left, and then also other group, centrist groups trying to then combine voices across both sides. So yeah. it's happening now. And yeah. I mean, and it's also happening in a degree inside those networks that are generating the data. So Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it these days, Truth Social, like they all have... You know, Facebook, everybody's got their algorithms that are, you know, both curating and generating and reinforcing certain beliefs. So it's happening inside those networks and then, you know, people yeah, are doing that's, that's a great point. This has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. It's been very interesting. Likewise. Thank you very much, Mike, for sharing your experience and expertise and, you know, your very broad viewpoint here. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I've really, really enjoyed it. And Mike, if people want to get in touch with you, if they have questions or want to connect, what's the best way? Uh, you can hit me up on email, mike.roberts at hypergiant.com. That's one way to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, and then thank you for uh, being on today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. 
If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.